Good morning. It's great to see you if we've never met. My name is Jay, and uh, I'm so glad you're here. First of all, before we jump into the teaching series, I just want to say uh, I'm so um, honored and humbled to be a, a small part of a community like this that um, brings actual change into the world, you know. Sometimes, against my own good judgment, I go on Facebook and Twitter, and I see people, people I love, yelling and screaming at each other about who's right and who's wrong. And there is a sort of settledness I find uh, week after week being a part of this church community with all of you because it's pretty hard to argue against clean drinking water for those in need. You know what I mean? Like, um, and I think in many ways, through, through things like that, but so many other ways, uh, you all, you know, those of you who participate with us, are a part of shining light into the chaos and cacophony of everyone's just arguments. Such a beautiful thing. So thanks for being who you are. Um, today, we are starting a brand new series on wisdom. And uh, for the next six weeks, if, if you've been tracking with us for a little bit, what you know is um, since December, actually, we've been journeying uh, methodically and steadily through the Gospel of Matthew. We are four chapters in. So if you do the math, this is like a four-year pace, and uh, we'll, we'll wrap up Matthew in 2026 or something, and I'm thrilled about that. That's actually a beautiful thing. So, uh, but from time to time, we will take breaks to explore some other ideas, and today we begin a short little break, but it's not really a break. It's, it's a deep dive into something that I think is so critically important, it's the concept and idea of wisdom. And so um, to just illustrate the need, I want to tell you a little bit about my own story. Before I began working in churches, before I became a pastor, uh, I was a banker. So my first job out of high school, my first job my freshman year of college, I got a job as a teller at Wells Fargo Bank. And at the time, I remember it paid $12 an hour. This is the late 90s. And that, you got, this is going to sound ridiculous to you now, that was a ton of money for an 18-year-old back then. Like, I could not believe these people were going to pay me $12 an hour. And so I get this job as a freshman in college at Wells Fargo Bank as a teller. And one of the things you have to do as a teller is you have to not only, you know, help people with their basic transa transactions, but they actually put some pressure on you to sell products. And primarily, the products are credit cards. And so I remember my first week, they gave me all of this, um, all of these different uh, books to read about all of their credit card products. So I knew everything there was to know about Wells Fargo credit cards. I knew how they worked. I knew like inside baseball. I knew sort of the strategy behind how they would lull people in and then give that, you know, land like giant interest rates on them and sort of, um, you know, lure them in under the guise of like, I'm, it feels like I'm bashing Wells Fargo Bank. Some of you bank there, you're like, oh no, should I leave Wells Fargo? <laughs> this is not, no, Wells Fargo's fine. But this is just how credit works, right? So I knew everything there was to know about credit cards, but I was 18 years old. So what do you think happened in my life? I got a credit card and I knew everything there was to know. I knew how the interest rates work. I knew how people like grew massive amounts of credit card debt. What do you think happened to me as an 18 year old? I just bought a PlayStation 2. 
I ordered cable TV for the first time in my life. I played music at the time, so I bought like, uh, you know, I bought some amps and a new guitar and some pedals. Mark is cheering this on, but it ruined my life, right? So I just racked up massive amounts of credit card debt. And what is that? What is that? That is so strange, right? Because I knew everything there is to know. But the knowledge did not translate to wise action. Some of us in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. And this is why there is a need in our world and in our lives for so much more than just knowledge or information. We need wisdom. And wisdom, I think all of us would agree, whether we know exactly what wisdom is or not, I think all of us in the room and everyone watching online and in the theater, I think we would agree, well, whatever wisdom is, it's something more than just knowledge or know-how or information. And we need it. Whatever it is, I have a sense deep in my bones, I need it. Because honestly, in the day and age in which you and I live, knowledge and information is not a problem. I mean, you can access whatever knowledge, whatever data, whatever information you need literally within seconds. That's not the issue. The issue is wisdom. So for the next six weeks, we're going to explore this concept of wisdom. Um, Mark quoted Dallas Willard earlier. We quote, quote him quite a bit here. Dallas Willard describes wisdom this way. He says that wisdom is the settled disposition of the soul to act in accordance with knowledge. We can talk for an hour just about this quote. It is the settled, not the rushed, not the in a hurry disposition we just sang about, but rather it is the, it is the settled disposition of the soul not just to know, but to act in accordance to the knowledge that you have. Another great theologian and philosopher, Steve Clifford, <laughs> he puts it this way. I love this quote. I've got all these Steve idioms in my mind. Um, so do you. He's a brilliant, Steve, he always, Steve always puts himself off like he's like this country hick from Texas. He's actually a genius, which is like, you know, the gift of who he is to us. Steve puts it this way. He says this all the time um, around the staff. Make the best decision you can with the information you have. This is wisdom. It's not just having the best information. It is the settled disposition of the soul to make the best decision with the best information that you have access to. Throughout the series, we are going to um, explore this uh, reality that wisdom is not a static set of solutions to problems. That's typically what most of us are looking for. It's like I have a problem. What is the solution? Let me just move on with my life after I fix the problem. That's not wisdom. That's knowledge. That's like, oh, um, I need to build this new sofa. I I ordered from IKEA. What is the solution? Wow, there it is. The instruction manual. I use all of the tools, and then, you know, an hour and a half later, I have my sofa, right? That's not wisdom. That's knowledge. It's information, and it's really good, and it's really important, and it's really helpful. Wisdom, however, 
is a dynamic gift of God. It's not static. It's dynamic. It's alive. It's moving. It's breathing. It evolves and changes with the times and circumstances and situations. Wisdom is a dynamic gift of God that helps us build worthwhile lives. Not just solve problems, but build worthwhile lives. So for the next six weeks, you and I are going to journey through this idea together and hopefully begin to live the wise life. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in together. God, we come to you, I come to you, readily admitting that though I have a lot of knowledge and information and data, I so often lack wisdom. So we come to you today asking with our hearts and minds open that by your spirit, you would teach us in such a way that we not only become more knowledgeable, but that we begin to embody godly wisdom in such a way that we might work alongside you to build lives that are worthwhile, not just for us, but for the world. We love you and we thank you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. 1974 in Sweden, they developed something you and I are very familiar with, something called the food pyramid. Now, the food pyramid has taken on various iterations as health and science has evolved, right? It's, at one point, they said... At the bottom of the pyramid, which is the base, the most important stuff, they were like, eat lots of carbs, eat lots of pasta. And now half of you are on keto and you're like, pasta will kill you, stop eating carbs or whatever, right? This has changed over time. But you get the, you understand the concept of the food pyramid, yes? It's essentially a way of building a healthy diet, a way of saying, I need, my physical body needs to intake particular types of foods, right, whole grains or whatever, in quantity, and I need less quantity of other things, like that chocolate donut or that ice cream. That's how the pyramid works, right? So less of the stuff that is not as good for you, more of the stuff that is actually going to build wholeness in your life. And I would suggest to you that today in our day and age, while we have in many ways maybe not mastered, but really embraced something like the food pyramid, maybe what we need in our day and age is something more like the wisdom pyramid. And that phrase, the wisdom pyramid, I am borrowing from our friend Brett McCracken, who actually has a book. So we're not going to deep dive into the wisdom pyramid, but if you are interested, I would highly recommend to you his book, Brett's book, The Wisdom Pyramid. Uh, you just find it, you know, wherever you buy books. And he essentially lays out how our wisdom diet has sort of inverted. So a good example of this would be, you know, um, on the food pyramid, they would say, don't eat a lot of sugar, eat a lot of whole grains. And if you invert the two, if you eat a lot of sugar but not a lot of whole grain, your body is going to suffer. Brett McCracken would say, read a lot of Bible, but don't ingest a lot of internet. And yet in our day and age, we have inverted the two. We are all over the internet and social media all the time, hours a day, and we just sprinkle in a little bit of Bible. 
if eating food that way is destructive to the physical body, McCracken's argument, and I agree with him, is that eating information that way is destructive to the soul. And why do I show you this? Because I believe that the need for wisdom is universal, especially in our day and age. Brett McCracken, he puts it this way in his book. He says, our world has more information, but less and less wisdom. More data, less clarity. More stimulation, less synthesis. More distraction, less stillness. More pontificating, less pondering. More opinion, less research. More speaking, less listening. More to look at, less to see. More amusements, less joy. There is more, but we are less. We are living in an unwise age. And I think this quote describes much of the angst you and I feel today. Again, knowledge and information are, are at our fingertips, and yet so many of us find ourselves falling short of living the lives we truly want to live. More importantly, we find ourselves falling short of experiencing the fullness of life that God offers. Many of us feel completely overrun with things like disinformation and hurry, as we sang about a few moments ago, and maybe self-centric despair, self-centeredness. But I believe these next six weeks are going to be so vitally important to us for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is because I believe the gift wisdom has to offer us is discernment in a world of disinformation, patience in a world of hurry. Humility in a world of self-centered me, me, me. Wisdom has a way of helping you reshape the diet of your soul where you begin feeling alive and vibrant and healthy again. The way is to offer us discernment, patience, and humility. I quoted Steve just a few moments ago, but I just thought Steve already knows this, so he's not going to be offended. My favorite Clifford is actually Dana. And um, Dana, uh, she embodies so many gifts of God, but if you know her well, what you know is that as I talk about discernment, patience, and humility, Dana comes to mind for many of you. She has offered me, especially in these last two years, most of you don't know this, she has offered me wisdom in ways that not even Steve has offered me. And the reason is because Dana embodies discernment, patience, and humility. It's an incredible gift that she has. And uh, what I've come to realize, and, and this is so true because of her story, Dana embodies what psychologists call crystallized intelligence. This isn't a Christian idea. It's a psychological, it's an it's a idea in the world of psychology. In the world of psychology, they differentiate between two types of intelligence. And they say there is one type of intelligence called fluid intelligence. Fluid intelligence is actually the ability to solve abstract problems very quickly. Now, Dana certainly has that. Many of you in this room have that in spades, right? Silicon, Silicon Valley is the place of fluid intelligence. We are startup culture 101, right? We are constantly solving problems as quickly as we can, as creatively as we can. And that is a wonderful thing, not a bad thing. 
But there's a different type of intelligence that psychologists call crystallized intelligence. Crystallized intelligence is not the ability to quickly solve abstract problems. Crystallized intelligence is what psychologists describe as knowledge gained over a lifetime through many experiences and consistent actions. So again, crystallized intelligence is not the ability to swiftly, quickly solve problems. Crystallized intelligence is the knowledge you gain over living a life and consistently acting in a manner that builds a life worth living. And because crystallized intelligence is most often gained over the long haul, it's typically most common in those who have gone through the many ups and downs of life. Hence why Dana is, to me, one of the wisest people I know. She embodies the sort of crystallized intelligence. She is able to discern. She is patient. And she is humble. Not because she was just born that way, but because she has gone through the many ups and the many downs of life. But she has acted consistently. For her, she has acted in a way that is um, as godly as possible, moment by moment. Not to say she's perfect, but it is to say that she has tried to live her life that way. And so if you know her, what you experience from her is crystallized intelligence. It's not just, oh, you can solve that problem this way or that way. It's a settledness of the soul. A willingness to be patient, to journey with you, to discern, and to do so humbly. This is wisdom. So when I talk about crystallized intelligence, for me, it makes me think of Dana, but it also brings me to a book in the Bible, a book called Proverbs. Proverbs is the book of wisdom in the Bible. Many of you know it. Many of you know it actually primarily because of all of the one-liners, the pithy one-liners and the axioms and idioms we find in Proverbs. But, but, But if you don't know, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is actually split up into two sections. Chapters 1 through 9, and then chapters 10 to 31. Now, the part of Proverbs most of us know is chapters 10 to 31. That's where we find all of the pithy one-liners that are really memorable. But actually, the way Proverbs opens, chapters 1 through 9, it's actually a conversation. Proverbs 1 through 9 is a conversation between a father, an aging father, sharing his wisdom to his young, up-and-coming son. And the reason Proverbs is so important is because Proverbs displays crystallized intelligence. Tradition tells us that Proverbs was written by Solomon, a man who was king and considered the wisest man in human history. But also, if you look at his life, he had many ups and downs. And Proverbs are a series of his thoughts and his words to his son over the course of his lifetime. He's essentially compiling all of the collective wisdom, the crystallized intelligence, and passing it on to his son. It opens this way, Proverbs 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction 
for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair. You see the difference here. It's not just knowledge or information. The goal of wisdom is to help us act a particular way, to do what is right and just and fair. Again, as Willard puts it, wisdom is the settled disposition of the soul to act in accordance with knowledge. Or as Steve puts it, we make the best decision we can with the information that we have. It's not a static set of answers to problems. It is a dynamic gift of God that allows us to build a worthwhile life through our actions. The theologian Tremper Longman, he says that wisdom is not just an intellectual category, but closely entwined with ethical behavior. In fact, in the Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, the word for wisdom is the Hebrew word chokmah. And the Hebrew word chokmah is actually also translated into the word skill. It's the word used to describe when a craftsman creates something really special or unique, or when an artist paints a painting that is one of a kind. That's the word chokmah. It's also the word for wisdom. In other words, wisdom is the skill to live and to craft alongside God a worthwhile life, a one-of-a-kind, unique life, a life that is a gift to God, to you, and to the world. Now again, Proverbs is broken up into two sections. Chapters 10 to 31 are all of the idioms that we're familiar with, all of the one-liners, and they're really beautiful and profound. But chapters 1 through 9 of Proverbs, again, is a conversation. It's really a one-sided conversation. It's monologue, not really dialogue. Monologue from a, a, an aging, wise father to a son he loves because he wants to bestow upon this son all of the wisdom, all of the crystallized intelligence this father has gained over the course of a lifetime of ups and downs. Now, what's really interesting is the end of chapter 9, or most of chapter 9, is sort of the turning point in the book. So if uh, Proverbs chapters 1 through 9 is like the entire speech from the wise father to the son, then the end of chapter 9, or chapter 9 itself, essentially is the conclusion of this long speech, right? Does that make sense? Okay, so when you conclude a speech, you're going to give sort of your final remarks, your benediction, the thing that summarizes all of your teaching, right? Okay, this is what um, the father says to the son. I'm going to read it for you, and then I'll explain. First, Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. The father says, wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live Walk in the way of insight. 
So the father personifies wisdom as a woman to his son. You catch that there? He doesn't just say, get some wisdom. He, he personifies wisdom as a woman. And this is consistent throughout uh, the book of Proverbs and actually throughout the scriptures. There's a good reason for this. I'll explain in a moment. But the father doesn't just personify lady wisdom. There is another woman in the story. Lady folly or foolishness. Later in Proverbs chapter 9, the father says this. Folly or foolishness or a lack of wisdom. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of our house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. This sounds very similar, right? To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious, but little do they know that the dead are theirs, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. So this father personifies wisdom and folly or foolishness or a lack of wisdom as two women. And he does this not because men are wiser than women. We all know from experience that is utterly untrue, right? He does this because remember, this is a father speaking to his young son. And he personifies wisdom and folly, foolishness, lack of wisdom as women because he's trying to make a very clear point about whether you're a man or a woman or not, about what wisdom and folly want from you in your life. And this wasn't just true back then during the time of Proverbs. This is universally true throughout human history. It's true today. Here's what I mean. You noticed first that the father says, both wisdom and folly call from where? Anyone remember? The highest point in the city. In the ancient world, throughout the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, where these words were originally written, any city you went to, if you looked up at the highest point of the city, does anybody know what building would be at the highest point of the city? The temple, that's right. Every culture in the ancient Near Eastern world would put their place of worship, the place they believed, the gods or the divine would reside with them. That's the structure they would put at the highest point of the city. So what does this father mean when he says wisdom and folly both call out to you from the highest point of the city? Why does he say this? He says it because both wisdom and folly want to take up residence in the part of your heart and mind where you worship. Wisdom and folly do not simply want to be peripheral side characters in the story of your life. They want your complete allegiance. Wisdom and folly both want you to worship at their altar. 
to shape the entirety of your life around who they are and what they want from you or for you. Wisdom and folly are not side characters you tap into every now and then. They, one or the other becomes the through line of your life. You are either living wisely or foolishly. There is no in-between. This is why wisdom and folly call from the highest point of the city. And what do they say when they call? Does anybody know what the, does anybody remember what the invitation from both Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly was? What do they say to the people? Come to my house. They say, come to my house. Now that sounds innocent enough in English, right? Some of you after church today will uh, make some lunch plans. And if you're really good friends, maybe some of you will say to your friends today, hey, come to my house, come over, let's watch the Warriors game, I'll barbecue, whatever, right? If anybody's doing that, give me a call. I would love to (laughs) join you, go Warriors, get that sweep. Okay, I'm getting distracted. Right? Now, in the ancient world, in, in Hebrew, that phrase, come to my house, is, it's, it doesn't sound the way it sounds in English to you and I. It is, a, it is a phrase that is laced with intimate innuendo. This isn't something any like sort of friends would just say to each other. This is something that a husband would say to a wife or a wife would say to a husband. Make sense? This is a, 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 it's a, it's a phrase that was very common in the ancient world um, to essentially say, I want to be intimate with you. What does that mean? Wisdom and folly don't just want to play, again, a, um, a sort of, you know, partial part of your life. They want to be intimate with you. Wisdom or folly one or the other, is going to be your life partner through and through. She, one or the other, will be right alongside you. You know, in some ways you could say like in bed with you. You are in bed with wisdom or folly every step of the way. And so as wisdom and folly call out to us from the highest point of the city, desiring our allegiance, inviting us to come to their house, this intimate relationship, what do they offer? Lady Wisdom says this, come, eat my food and drink my wine, I, drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will what? Live. Lady Folly says what? Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do these people know who go to Lady Folly's house that the dead are there. So in other words, wisdom offers life with no promise of pleasure. You notice that wisdom does not say, eat my sweet food, drink my delicious wine. That is not what Lady Wisdom says. Lady Wisdom simply says, I have food and drink for you. The stuff that will sustain you, keep you alive. But if you come and eat and drink with me, with wisdom, you will what? You will live. 
But what does folly, foolishness, a lack of wisdom offer? Sweet stuff, delicious stuff, and death. In other words, wisdom offers life with no promise of pleasure. Folly or foolishness or an unwise life offers pleasure with no mention of death. When I got that credit card bill when I was 18, the pleasure of the PlayStation 2 and the pleasure of that brand new guitar and the brand new amp and the pedals and the pleasure of finally having cable TV, the pleasure of those things gave way to death. When I realized, as I already knew, that I didn't have the money to pay for the stuff that I had charged on my credit card. And this plays out in our lives in all sorts of ways. Sometimes it's with finances. Sometimes it's with relationships. Sometimes it's with family or friends. Sometimes it's with all sorts of decisions pertaining to where we're going to go, what we're going to do, our thought life, the way we're going to engage and interact in the world in which we find ourselves. But constantly, foolishness, Folly, an unwise life, is calling out from the highest point of the city saying, come, eat my sweet food, drink my delicious wine, gain pleasure in your life, and it hides the fact that it leads to death. The death of wholeness, the death of joy, the death of a settledness in our spirit because we are living the life God has for us. But wisdom offers no such pleasure. It does offer us life. Wisdom is honest. It doesn't promise pleasure, it promises life. But folly, foolishness, an unwise life is deceptive. It promises pleasure, but it hides the resulting death. So the question for us today as we begin this journey together, do I want pleasure or do I want life? So much of our lack of wisdom comes down to answering this question wrong. Choosing pleasure instead of choosing life. Mark and the team are going to come back up. And we're going to sing and worship together and respond. But I want to take a few moments here to sort of center our hearts and minds on a couple of thoughts. We sort of try to apply wisdom and some of these thoughts and ideas, these truths into our actual real lives. And to do that, I want to tell you a story. This is an old folk story, um, and I don't know where it originated from, but I think it's really helpful. There's this old folk story that tells the story of an old woman who was a traveler. And one day, this old woman, this old traveler, is uh, walking by a river stream, and she finds in the river a precious, valuable jewel. Right, this stone, this gem that is of utmost worth. And she puts it in her satchel and she continues on her way. And then as she's traveling, she comes across a fellow traveler, a young man. And the young man is hungry and says to the old traveler, may I have some food? Would you share some food with me? And this old woman opens her satchel to share her food. And the young man sees, as she opens the satchel, he sees this precious gem. And he says, you know what? 
I don't want your food, but can I have your gem? And this old woman smiles at the young man, and without hesitation, she hands him the gem. It says, have a good day. And the young man leaves, and he's like ecstatic about his good fortune, and he's trying to figure out when and where he could sell this gem to get rich. And then a few days later, this young man returns to the old woman. He finds her, and he has the gem in his hand. And he says to the old woman, I want to give you your gem back. She says, oh, why? And he says to her, in exchange for the gem, I want to ask you for something even better that you have. She says, what's that? And he says, I want to ask you to give me the secret which allowed you to so easily give me the gem. This is the invitation of wisdom. That we begin to see past the pleasure that's all around us, the potential pleasure, all that shimmers and gleams and lulls us into the house of foolishness or folly. And instead, do the work of searching, deeply excavating our desires, our longings, and asking the question, why is it that I want that thing I think I want so bad? And is that the wise thing? The wise life is slowly and steadily learning to see past the pleasures of the world in order to pursue that which is of true value and immeasurable worth. Here's the thing, some of this may have felt to you like a little self-helpish, but biblical wisdom is not self-help. The essence of biblical wisdom isn't trust in self, but trust in God. Again, earlier in Proverbs, the father says to the son, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Listen, true wisdom is not found in the teachings of gurus and the axioms of sages. True wisdom is not found in TED Talks or doctorate degrees or in Silicon Valley innovation or a Wall Street portfolio. True wisdom is found in God alone, in trusting Him rather than our own understanding, in submitting to Him rather than being wise in our own eyes. So as we prepare our hearts to sing, to respond, I wanna ask you, Everybody in the room and everybody watching in the theater and online, just take a moment and close your eyes. I want to ask you a few questions. Just close your eyes to center your thoughts between yourself and the God who longs to give us wisdom. And I just want to ask you a few questions with eyes closed. In what areas of your life, what decisions, circumstances, relationships do you need to stop leaning on your own understanding today and begin trusting God? In what areas of your life do you need to submit to God?
And what areas of your life do you need true wisdom, God's wisdom today? James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all, without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Amen.